Welcome to week four of our series called What Does Love Require? And we've covered a lot of material so far through this series. We've processed the differences between the old covenant between God and the nation of Israel and the new covenant that that came with Jesus through his death and resurrection. And we've discussed how, how necessary that was for us. And we've also, just this past weekend, unpacked the mistake of mixing the old with the new. If you've missed even one of these sermons over the past three weeks, I encourage you to go and and watch them online because the story arc to this series is so important. And, And I don't think this week is any different because today we get to talk through the implications of all this and how how it helps us figure out what what love requires of each of us. And with these implications comes a significant struggle for many Christians as well as those who have yet to give their lives to Jesus. It's a struggle I've seen throughout my own life and definitely a struggle I've seen as a pastor. I think back to when I was a youth pastor here at Cornerstone and every year we did a four-week series for our high school students on the topic of love, sex, and dating. And I don't know if you were aware of this, but teenagers think about those three things a lot. Like they can't stop thinking about those three things. Anytime I said, hey, what do you guys want us to teach on? One of those three things would come up. And so, so we, we talked about it just four weeks out of the year. They wish we could have done 52 weeks. But if you had a kid go through my youth ministry, don't, don't worry. Uh, it was just four weeks. But it's a subject they focus on. And when it comes to sexual sin, there was one question that I was consistently asked by our high school students, and that question was, hey, Steve, how far is too far? Now, this question is not unlike another question I've received as I've become a pastor to adults. Hey, pastor, is is this a sin or is that a sin? I mean, I even had meetings in light of this series and what we've taught about the old covenant that God made with the nation of Israel where people have wondered how our church draws the line of what's a sin and what's not. And many of us understand and, and, and really have a desire to want to know and comprehend what's all on that list. Now, why do we want to know this? Why do we want to know questions like this? Why do we want to know what's a sin or, or what's not a sin? Well, my high schoolers wanted to know what was okay and what was not okay so that they knew how far they could go and what they could get away with and still be okay with God. And and I don't necessarily think our motivation changes all that much as we ask these types of questions when we get older because being okay with God is super important to us. And this has been true since the beginning. And we see this in different Old Testament stories where, where it seems that at many times, Sin avoidance was the priority to God's people. And when they sinned, they naturally became fearful of what God might do. For for those living under the old covenant, uh, pleasing God was the most important thing because there were blessings to be enjoyed when you pleased God and there was punishment to suffer when you didn't. King David and his affair with Bathsheba gives us a little bit of insight into this kind of thinking. Because when King David's friend, Nathan, called him out on his sin, he said, like, what you're, what you're doing right now, David, this is not good. You are sinning. And so David was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Crazy that I missed that. 
And David repented saying, I have sinned against God. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. I have sinned against God, which he did. He sinned against God. But when I read this story, I feel like David sinned against Bathsheba as well. And I feel like David sinned against his royal military commander when he slept with the man's wife and then had him killed to cover it up. Now, I'm not trying to sound legalistic here. I just feel like killing someone is sinning against that person. But David makes no mention of sinning against this man or this woman. He just says, I've sinned against God. Why is that? Well, because pleasing God was most important. Let's call this upward concern or upward love. The desire to love God and show concern for what God desires through following his commandments. Upward concern. This was most important. You know, back in David's day, if one person sinned against another person, that didn't matter as much as sinning against God because if you sin against God, you're in serious trouble. And what's the problem when when we're in serious trouble with God? Well, based on old covenant law, if I'm in trouble with God, then my health, my wealth, and maybe even my life are in danger. So check out what happens as a result. Consequently, upward concern quickly becomes inward concern. My primary concern in this line of thinking is not that I have hurt my heavenly father, but rather my inward concern revolves around the consequences I might face because of how I sinned. But my remorse after my sin isn't really about offending God and how my sin would impact him, but rather how it would impact me. If I wrong God, then God will probably punish me, and that's not going to be good for me. So this mindset left them and still leaves us when we ask these types of questions, looking for loopholes and workarounds, wondering how much can I get away with or how far is too far. But I don't think this is the only way that upward concern reveals itself as inward concern. Uh, I remember when I was in college and my life had shifted toward Jesus and and I was living completely for him. Everything about me was focused on, on seeking, trying to seek deeper intimacy with God. How can I know God more? What can I do to get closer to God? What can I do to show God that I love him better? How can I experience God in a more in-depth way? which were all really good questions to ask. But when I look back and I think about it, I wonder, what was my end game? Because who really benefits from me seeking greater intimacy with God? Like, like when I make sure I have a very intentional, quiet time with God, do you think God is like, phew, thank you, I needed that today? <laughs> no. I'm the one who benefits. Now, The issue is when I'm only concerned about my intimacy with God, which again is a really good thing to work toward. I'm not vilifying that at all. I hope we're clear on that. But if that becomes my sole focus, then sometimes, speaking from personal experience here, I tend to become just as self-absorbed as people who are looking for how much they can get away with. It's, it's not intentional, and it doesn't start out this way, but my quest to become closer to God sometimes becomes all about me. 
Now, I've also discovered that when you get to this place, it's really difficult to avoid a holier-than-thou mentality. And it's really easy to become more intolerant and judgmental when you think this way. Upward, upward concern too often evolves into inward concern. It may start off sincere, but without a proper motivation and constant assessment of what my goal is. It is so easy to try and do good things so that God will like me more or bless me more, or even that I would be viewed and edified and praised by others for how godly of a person I am. This is dangerous. Here's the deal. Both the person who is trying to see what they can get away with and the person who's trying to gain intimacy with God for the sake of moving up God's list of favorites or to enjoy more of God's blessing— These are both people who live under an old covenant mindset. And we have to understand that God's covenant with Israel was upward in nature because that's what he intended. He needed to get their attention. He wanted them to pay attention to him because he was creating a new nation. Hey, Israel, don't have any other gods before me. Keep your eyes on me and keep my commands. Don't even mix or marry with people of other nations because I'm trying to create a new nation. Pay attention. You know, after Moses, who received the old covenant on Mount Sinai, passed leadership of the people on to Joshua, God made this clear to Joshua as well. Joshua 1, verse 8, keep this book of the law always on your lips, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. If you do this, then you will be prosperous and successful. We learned this a couple weeks ago, that the covenant God made with the nation of Israel was conditional. And the covenant included commands about treating other people well and treating foreigners with dignity. But even though there were stipulations about others, the motivation still became often inward in nature. Because God clearly says, hey, if you keep my law, then I will bring you prosperity and success If you do everything I told you to do, you will be good. You will be content. You will be wealthy. You will be secure. Do do, do we see how easily a desire to follow God's rules can shift toward a desire for one's own security? You know, most of us who have spent any time around church or any time learning about Jesus Christ, we would say that this inward concern is never and was never God's end game. So if that's true, if it's true that upward concern typically manifests itself as inward concern, then what is the alternative? What else would God require? Jesus begins to answer this for us in his Sermon on the Mount. And Pastor Steve walked through some of this last week with us. Uh, But right after Jesus kind of redefines how people look at murder and hatred he starts to tell a story in Matthew chapter 5, verse, or I get, paint a picture in Matthew 5, verses uh, uh, 33, 23, 23 through 24. It says, here's what Jesus says. He just redefined murder. He just redefined hatred. And, and then he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, so you get to the front of the line, leave your gift there in front of the altar First, don't miss this word, because this word first is important, what Jesus says here. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. 
let's understand a little bit about how this statement would have sat with Jesus's audience that day. Because he just finished telling them that anger with a brother or sister is comparable to murder. So they would have already been like, ugh. They would have been reeling a little bit. And then he sets up this scenario. He says, if you're about to bring your gift for the Lord to the altar, if you're waiting to do what is required of you by the law, but then you remember that you've got an issue with someone else, leave and go fix that before you bring your gift to God. Like this would have caused them to start really processing some of what Jesus meant because when Jesus preached this sermon, he was in Galilee. And as soon as he mentioned offering a gift at the altar, his audience would have pictured the three-day journey to get to the temple from where they were in order to make such a sacrifice. And, and when they got to the temple, a trip most Jews would only take like once or twice a year. But when you got to the temple, there would have been long lines that you would have waited in for quite a while, standing in the sun, getting bumped into by, by hordes of people. And then Jesus says, right before you get to the front, if you remember, if you go, oh, wait, there's that person that I have something unresolved with, Jesus says, give up your spot in line that you have been waiting in forever. And before you even bring your gift to God, go and reconcile with that person. Let me try and make this make a little more sense for us today. How many, how many Disneyland fans do we have out there? See, so you guys are usually like super passionate Disneyland fans, so I expected a little bit more gusto with, with that, more than just a hand raise. Um, like, like my sister's a big Disneyland person, her and her husband, and, and they get really excited. They buy the season pass, and, and Disneyland people are just, just passionate people. Like they're just as passionate as, as, as keto people and, and, and vegans and, and essential oil people and... And CrossFitters, like CrossFitters are always just CrossFit. Like they're so passionate. All of those people are so passionate. And when I say passionate, just so we're clear, I mean annoying. And <laughs> I like the, every time I say that, people, someone claps. Like they are annoying. They just, it drives me crazy. Uh, I'm, just so we're clear, I'm joking. My wife does most of those things and she does not annoy me. Um, I, I just apparently hate healthy things. So, uh, and Disneyland. I can't stand Disneyland, I, that, that was offensive to you? <laughs> I'm not even gonna tell you how I feel about the Niners today. Okay, I, <laughs> I, I don't like Disneyland. I'm losing people now. They're like, never again am I coming to this church. Uh, but, but I go to Disneyland because my son likes it. I mean, if you have kids and, and you're able to do it, you, you go to Disneyland because for some reason that place makes them happy. Now imagine you've waited in line for the only good ride in the entire park, which is, what is it? Did someone say small world? <laughs> that is blasphemy. There's no place for that here at Cornerstone Fellowship. No, it's, it's Space Mountain. So I heard someone say Space Mountain. That's the only good ride at that entire park. And I think it's some like Star Trek ride or something now. And so... Yeah, every time I say that, I know it's Star Wars, but Star Wars fans get all like, it's not Star Trek, it's Star Wars. It's important to me. Uh, but let's say, so you, you've waited in, in, in this line to, to ride Space Mountain for two hours, and you get to the front of the line, 
and your kid pulls on your shirt and says the one thing you knew they were gonna say <laughs> right when you got to the front. And what do they say? Mommy or daddy, I gotta go potty. <laughs> and as a good parent, you say, hold it. I am riding this ride. We have waited for too long for you to get me out of this line so that you can go to the bathroom. Not gonna do it. And then you go, wait, I, I need to be a good parent here. So you proceed to leave the line because you realize what your child requires of you is more important than what you want. And really, you just don't wanna clean anything up afterward, right? That's, that's the goal. So that same feeling that you would be feeling getting out of line after waiting two hours to ride Space Mountain is the same thing that, Je that Jesus' Jewish audience that day would have been feeling. No way am I going to give up my spot in line at the temple. I need to make my sacrifice. I am riding this ride. But Jesus says, there's something more important than making that sacrifice to God. If someone else has something against you, if there is an unresolved conflict, if you have wronged someone else, you need to handle that right away. You need to go take care of that first before you make your sacrifice to God. Or let's say this in a more concise way. Outward concern is what is most important according to Jesus. More important even than upward concern. Now that can't really be what Jesus meant, can it? I mean, did Jesus really mean to imply that outward concern would take priority over upward concern? Well, I think in a lot of ways, yes. But like most things Jesus says, this simple statement is so nuanced and complex. Because what if we come to learn that loving God or upward concern and outward concern are so closely attached that they cannot even be separated from one another. This would be something new. And this was just the beginning of the reshaping and redefining of the old covenant law that Jesus would do. And as Jesus was doing this, there were a couple groups of people who really disliked all the reshaping that he was doing. These groups were called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the religious elite. And they really wanted to catch Jesus in the act. They wanted to trip him up and see if they could get him to say something or do something that would be worthy of imprisonment or maybe even execution. So they try to trap him. At one point, the Pharisees send some of their interns, some of their students over to ask Jesus a question about taxes and that did not work out well. So, th so then the Sadducees were like, okay, we'll, we'll give it a go. And they started asking Jesus about the afterlife. And Jesus gave them an answer that caused them, he said, you guys don't even understand your own scripture well enough to ask me this question. And that shut them right up. And so they failed twice and they're like, we need a plan. What else can we do? In comes a lawyer, and Matthew writes all of this down. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 34. If you're opening your Bible, Matthew is right after Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Mark, Luke, and John follow Matthew. So if you get there, you've gone too far. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. 
I like hearing those pages, Russell. It's good. All right. Verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. Remember, we just said that. He shut them right up. The Pharisees got together. They tried, we got to come up with a plan. And one of them, an expert in the law, a lawyer, tested Jesus with this question. Now, did the expert in the law really want to learn anything? No. The lawyer was there to test Jesus, to see if he could get him to say something that would get him in trouble. And so he goes with this. This is his game plan. He says, hey, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, everyone knew the answer to this question. It was a foundational principle to the old covenant from the Shema found in Deuteronomy 6. They were to write this commandment on their hearts. They were to teach their children this commandment. This was the greatest commandment, and there was nothing that came anywhere close to it. So that's how Jesus answers. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And everyone went, Yes! Got it, Jesus. You nailed it. He's like, I know, I wrote it. And, and, and it seems like an easy answer, but let's just pause for a minute. Because for as easy as this is, maybe it's a little difficult to understand from a practical standpoint. Like, what does it look like? How do I love God with everything? It starts to prompt questions of love. Like, what even is love? Is love an emotion or a feeling? Or is love an action? You know, this is one of the first things my parents say to couples they're walking through marriage counseling with. They say, hey, love is an action. Love is not a feeling or an emotion. It's way more about what you do than how you feel. Like DC Talk, the incredible rock, rap, Christian band from my childhood said, someone said, yes, yeah, we're, we're throwing it back. One of their songs was, Love is a Verb. If you don't know who DC Talk is, John Mayer has a song with the same exact title. So we have sound theology from both Mayer and DC Talk. And they were both right. Love is an action. So if that's the case, how do I show this? It's the very question that is prompted by the greatest commandment. Love God with your heart, soul, and mind. And if love is an action, then the question becomes, how do I show God that I love him? How do I do this? Real quick, if, if I were to ask you how you show God that you love him, what would you say? What would your answer be? On your way in today, you were given a card with this question written on the, on the top. And, and what I want to ask you to do is just spend like 30 seconds real quick writing down two, three, maybe four things of what you do, how you show God that you love him. I'm serious. Let's let, let actually do this right now. Uh, if you're at Brentwood, Walnut Creek, Hayward, Danville, you guys do this as well. Watching online, there's a link in the chat. Go ahead and do this. And this isn't for anyone else. This is just for you, so you don't have to show it to anyone. We're not going to quiz you or anything and say you were right, you were wrong. Just between you and God, how do you, when you think about your relationship with God, how do you show God you love him? Go ahead and write a couple things down. I wish we had some, like, Jeopardy music or something to play in the background. It'd be a lot more. How do you show God you love him? If you, if you have some other ones that come up, great. Keep, keep writing them down, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll move on um, and let you know kind of what our goal is here. Old covenant thinking would answer this question by saying, keep the law, keep God's commands, and God will be happy. 
And one of the main reasons these religious leaders are trying to trip Jesus up with this question about which law is the greatest is because they consistently see, don't miss this, they consistently see Jesus overlooking the lesser commands. Like we, we've heard this here at Cornerstone. Like Jesus heals on the Sabbath. He touches dead people. He touches people with leprosy. He eats meals with unclean sinners. He even talks to women alone in public. So he disregarded these lesser commands and to the Pharisees through the lens of the old, old covenant, this meant that he was breaking the greatest command. Because to first century Jews, a commitment to the lesser is proof, is evidence of a commitment to the greater. When you follow the lesser commandments, it means that you love God with your heart, soul, and mind. Look at the list you wrote down. I wonder how many of our lists include some of the things that I wrote down when I started processing this this week. I, started, I said, you know, if I'm going to ask everyone to do this, I should probably start writing down what my list looks like. And this is, what, this is what I came up with. The way that I show God that I love him is I read the Bible. Because how, how else do you show someone you love them than to get to know them? So I read God's word, get to know him a little bit. I go to church. I mean, technically I get paid to be here, but I still go to church. <laughs> I, I follow the Ten Commandments. I don't lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery. I, I pray. I spend time with God. I spend quiet time with God. I connect with him. I give money to the church. I kind of volunteer in the church. This is, this is how I show God or have showed God in the past that I love him. Let me be clear. These are all great things to do. But as I wrote these down, I had to start asking myself, what is my motivation behind what I wrote down? Same question for you. What is your motivation behind what you wrote down? Who is that for? We'll come back to this in a minute. Let's look at what Jesus said next because he isn't done yet. He starts to answer that how question that's prompted but not asked because as soon as he says, love God with your heart, soul, and mind, it's like, well, okay, how do I do that? And then he says, well, I'll tell you without you even asking. The second is like it. Okay, second, the lawyer only asked for one. Why is Jesus given two? A little confusing. And when he says is like it, does he mean like just behind it? Not quite as important? Now, let's be clear. Jesus says the second is like it. He doesn't say that it's, it's, the second is almost as great or almost important. He says it's like it. As one pastor puts it, this command is not second in importance, but second in sequence. It's like it. I mean, we could go all the way to say that really these two commands are one command because they are so connected that they cannot be understood apart from one another. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a monumental historic moment because this is the very first time that these two commandments are attached. These two old covenant commandments are combined. They come from Deuteronomy and Leviticus and putting them together was a completely new concept. I mean, today we say this all the time, right? Love God and love others. That's what's most important. But this right here in Matthew 22 is the inception of the greatest command. And it points to a change that was coming. Look no further than the very next thing Jesus says. Here's what he says. All the law and the prophets, all of it hang 
on these two commandments. These two commandments that make the one greatest commandment sum up the entire law. These are the words of Jesus himself. He says, all, all the old covenant law, all the prophets, everything you read hangs on these two commands. Remember, to first century Jews, loving God means to obey his commands. But Jesus, look how he reshapes this. Jesus says, actually, to love God means to love your neighbor. We show God our love by how we do this. Now, this wasn't just upward concern that eventually manifested itself as inward concern. This was upward concern proven by outward concern to the magnitude of our inherent inward concern. So how do I show God my love? Well, we show our upward love through our outward love. Jesus is clearly communicating. This thought is just so crazy. You can't say you love God if you don't love your neighbor. Can't say it. You cannot say you love God if you don't love your neighbor. The evidence of our love for God is this one thing. Not quiet time, not memorizing Bible verses, not not having faith that Jesus forgave you, not tithing, not volunteering, not attending church. They're all great, but they do not prove our love for God. But what does, what is always evident in the life of a true follower of Jesus Christ is active, constant, consistent, persistent love of neighbor. That's why Jesus ends this story about the one great commandments. Yes, you heard me correctly, the one great commandments, because these two are really one, by saying that all the law and all the prophets hang on loving God by loving neighbor. It's so good what Jesus says here, because he's telling his audience who would have immediately thought of all their scripture, everything they read, and he says, it all hangs on this. This is what matters most. And here's why the tension would have been so palpable in, 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 in his audience that day. Because right here, Jesus takes all their workarounds, all their loopholes, and he throws them right out the window. I mean, think about this. If I give you a list of rules, you can find a loophole, right? I mean, parents who are here today, we know this. Like, if you give your kid a list of rules, they're going to find a way to work around it. Well, like the other day, my son Jericho was jumping from couch to couch in our family room, and I, and I stopped him. I said, dude, I told you last week, do not jump from couch to couch. That is breaking the rules. And he looked at me, and he said, no, dad, you told me to stop jumping. And I was like, that's what you're doing. And he looked back at me with this smug little look on his face, because <laughs> he had me right where he wanted me. He said, no, dad. I'm not jumping, I'm hopping. <laughs> See, when there, are, when there are a list of rules, we can make excuses. Like, hey, I didn't see any fine print with that rule you gave me. You didn't define it like that. You didn't say this, you only said that. You didn't specify when or where and so on. I mean, I see it all the time. Even when people approach me with questions about, about scripture, and it's typically someone who wants to justify their actions or, or, or are wondering what exactly the Bible says about what they did or, or want to do. Hey, how does the Bible define blank? Is there anything wrong with blank? Is blank a sin? 
And usually what is behind those questions is someone who wants to do something they know doesn't feel right, but if God doesn't spell it out perfectly in these words, then they feel justified by their actions. And to be honest, without what Jesus said that day, that Matthew recorded in chapter 22, I could probably use scripture to find a loophole for you to do whatever you wish you could do. But Jesus put an end to all that. He said, here's the rule. Love God by loving others. It all hangs on this. One command that cannot be split into two. All the law hangs on this. It canceled out every loophole and every single workaround. Love God by loving neighbor. Because here's the deal. We usually know whether or not what we do is loving another person or not. We usually know if what we do or what we say is honoring or hurting someone else, regardless of who that someone else is. Real quick, I'll make this this last point. Um, If you're confused about who your neighbor is, then this week I wanna encourage you, read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Or you could just take my word for it. Your neighbor includes everyone. Just as the new covenant from Jesus was for every person in every single nation throughout every single generation, that's who defines neighbor as well. There is no one person who would not fit within Jesus's definition of neighbor. Even the person who doesn't agree with you. Even the person who doesn't look like you. Even the person who doesn't vote like you. Even the person who wasn't born where you were born. Even the person who doesn't believe what you believe. Even the person who, uh, who isn't like you. And even the person who doesn't like anything about you. They are all our neighbors. And our love for God will be evident through how we love them. But I shouldn't even say them. Because to Jesus, there is no they. There is no them. There is only us. These are the new conditions and new requirements of his new covenant. And earlier I told you that my high school students used to ask me all the time, hey, Steve, how far is too far? A question that we've all probably asked in some way, shape, or form at different points in our life. Because it helps us figure out how much we can get away with or what the minimum requirement is. But Jesus causes us to reframe that question because it's no longer to what extent can I come up against the rule or, or how far can I push the rule before I break it. But rather, the concept gets inverted and becomes more so about how far we can expand the boundaries of love. How radically gracious can we be? Is there a line or a limit when it comes to compassion or love or generosity? How far can I go to honor someone else? Because what we discover from Jesus is that his love has no limits because God's love has no limits. You wanna love like God, then, then you, you wanna love God, then love like God loves. Because if you don't love your neighbor, if you don't love that group, if you don't love them, you don't love God. And, and if you're wrestling with what love really looks like, we're gonna take a closer look at this the next two weeks. But just a little bit of a sneak peek. Like I said earlier, if we're being honest with ourselves, we usually have a pretty good idea. We usually know what love requires. We are, we are typically perceptive and intelligent enough 
to know if our words or our actions hurt someone else or not. We typically know if what we do or what we say respects and honors another person or not. Doesn't mean we always like the answer to this question we've been building this entire series around. But we typically know. Maybe this week, take a look at the cards you wrote on earlier and just start processing your motivations behind what you wrote. Who benefits from those things? Who, who am I focused on based on what I wrote? Because if our motivation for those things is just about us, I believe Jesus is trying to break that in us today. And maybe that card should have just one or two words written on it. Maybe that card should have names of people written on it. Maybe that card should tell us the person or the group or the people that we need to go and reconcile with before we make an attempt to show God our love. And as we process all this, I hope you can begin to see this question taking shape because it's no longer about what I have to do to be in or how much can I, can I get away with or even wondering what the law requires. No, the question becomes... What does love require? Let's pray. Father God, first of all, I just want to say thank you for the way that you've uh, helped me process this this past week. That I've recognized that even in certain situations that start off sincere, God, that, that I still have such an inward focus. So Father, I ask that you continue to break that in me. And God, I ask that you continue to break that in us. That our, that, our, that our concern, God, would be how we exemplify your love, how we follow your leading and your example. When you went as far as to give your life for people who didn't like you, God, let us recognize our neighbors this week. Let us recognize how to be a neighbor, Father, and let us show you our love by how we love them. God, lead us, guide us, Pursue us, push us, prompt us, God, to be the church you desire us to be. That love wouldn't just be something we talk about at church, but it would be something that we exemplify in everything we do so that we can love you with everything we are. Pray all this in your son's precious, holy, beautiful, incredible name, Jesus Christ. Amen.